0: You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption,
1: a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should, too.
2: Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. My name is Raj Lala, I'm the CEO of Evolve ETFs, also joined by Elliot Johnson, who is our CIO. And, of course, our very special guest, Anthony the Pompliano. A uh, very popular podcast out there, self-titled The Pomp, with over 20 million downloads. Uh, definitely one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, he typically will interview a lot of business leaders in the area of finance, technology, of course, Bitcoin uh, as well. I had the, the, uh, the opportunity to be on his podcast last year, and it was, it was great. Um, in addition to his podcast, some of you may not be too familiar that he's actually quite an entrepreneur as well. Uh, and also an early stage investor in a number of companies including airbnb reddit uh coinbase built up a portfolio of over five worth over 500 million dollars so congratulations anthony and thanks for joining us today absolutely thanks for having me so do you go by do we call you the pomp or do we call you anthony or what do we call you
1: my uh my, my preference does not matter my uh my mom named me anthony though so uh that's what uh, she calls me everyone else they call me all kinds of different stuff
2: how did the pop get started though by the way is this something that you were called in high school
1: i think that a a football coach yelled at me once and didn't take the time to re- uh recite my entire last name he stopped for the first four letters and that was it <laughs>
2: There's always a story behind nicknames like that. So why don't we, uh, why don't we get right into it? Uh, I thought I would start kind of broad and talk a little bit uh, specifically around cryptocurrencies, may- maybe even more specifically Bitcoin. What do you see as some of the key opportunities in Bitcoin right now? And then maybe the second part of that would be what do you see as some of the key challenges as well?
1: If an opportunity standpoint, I mean, frankly, there's, too many of them uh, to sit here and, you know, we could talk for hours and wouldn't cover them all. Well, I'll say what that is, uh, there are a couple of uh, key ones. The first being, um, I think that there is a huge opportunity as a global store of value uh, still. So if you think about Bitcoin being a $1 trillion asset, uh, that's just minuscule in the grand scheme of things on the kind of global financial scale. And so I think that there's going to be a very rapid uh, kind of vacuum of uh, value from other assets into Bitcoin. It will quite literally eat into other assets. If you look over the last, uh, you know, 18 months or so, 12 months, gold is down 8%. Bitcoin is up over 400%. You know, in some weird way, uh, Bitcoin is literally eating gold. Uh, and i think that will continue we'll probably see uh, bitcoin cross gold's market cap uh, somewhere south of 10 uh, trillion dollar market cap size so you're going to continue to see gold contracts bitcoin expand and, and we'll cross over there somewhere the second big opportunity is in this idea of decentralized uh kind of digital payments right if you think of bitcoin as an open monetary network Uh, Things like the Lightning Network, I think, are uh, drastically undervalued in the market today. Uh, The idea that you can simply plug into this network, you don't have to talk to anyone, you don't have to do a business development deal with anyone, you don't have to invest in uh, kind of the infrastructure without yourself. You basically plug right in, and the second you plug in, what you get is the Decentralized Digital Open Monetary Network that is being supported by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world. So all that infrastructure, you know, somebody wants that the fastest way to build a team is to plug into an open source network. Uh, and that's basically what people are doing here. And I think that will only continue. And then lastly, uh, I think is, uh, there's a massive opportunity uh, at the nation state level so I think of adoption of these assets in three buckets. The first being uh, individuals. This is one of the few assets where individuals have kind of front-run the institutions uh, and got in the game. We now see uh, what I call the second cohort bucket, which is uh, institutions themselves. This is both financial institutions and kind of what people think of asset managers or asset allocators, uh, banks, etc., but also companies so public and private corporations putting bitcoin on the balance sheet choosing to participate in the industry etc so institutions cohort one second cohort is uh is institution i'm sorry uh uh, individuals is cohort one institutions is cohort two cohort three is the nation states and we've already seen el salvador go ahead and uh, embrace this uh you know i'm not a uh, expert on salvadorian politics don't want to beat one uh if you separate away the people versus the action the idea that a country in June decided to embrace this technology, by September they had built and launched not only a mobile software application, but on top of that also launched a network of Bitcoin EMs, both in their country and in the United States, and then within four weeks, now boasts over three million users, which is about 50% of their entire country population, that's stuff that it, you would expect out of a technology startup, right? So so the execution speed here has been pretty impressive. And so what I think that does is that drastically increases the incentive for other countries to start to participate. So we've got Brazil now talking about uh, potentially introducing this as a little tender. Uh, we've got Panama, you know, Ecuador, just go down the line, a bunch of countries talking about it. We'll see what happens, uh, but to me, The economic incentive is so strong that I I think a lot about this idea of, uh, for individuals and institutions, of like an ignorance tax. So the ignorance tax basically is uh, you buy Bitcoin at the price you deserve, and the longer you wait, higher the ignorance tax. And ignorance could be uh, you just didn't know about it. You didn't seek it out. You didn't find it. Uh, But it also could be you just dismissed it, right? So you knew about it and chose not to participate it's not necessarily as negative as it sounds, it's just you pay a tax for being later than being earlier. When you start to talk about that at a nation state level, that ignorance tax becomes really, really painful, especially when you start talking about billions of dollars of economic value, uh, the economic impact of having those companies domiciled in your geography, et cetera. I tend to think that it's a, 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 a pretty important thing. and so. You know whether it's global store value decentralized payments or kind of the nation-state adoption i think those are probably the three big ones on, on top of mind right now but there's a ton that we could uh, talk through
2: yeah actually along along those lines on the nation-state adoption you mentioned countries like brazil and ecuador may may look at uh, approving bitcoin as well but um do you see in the in the near future may, maybe in the next you know 12 to 18 months any of the more developed countries looking at adoption?
1: I think they're all thinking about it. Um, The interesting part about individuals as like a cohort group, you don't necessarily think of it as a Bitcoin strategy. You just think of it, hey, does somebody buy Bitcoin or not? Do they participate or do they not? When you get uh, into institutions, there's a lot more planning that goes on. There's a lot more strategic thinking. And so right now, I would say that every financial institution has already had the conversation and has at least determined their initial bitcoin strategy we're going to buy some we're not going to buy some we're going to participate in some way we're not going to participate we're going to build you know products and services in this industry we're not we're going to build an internal team we're not right whatever the strategy is again neither one's necessarily right or wrong it's just they've had the conversation they've determined that strategy at a financial institution corporations are now starting to do this so you see in the public markets uh the very large corporations they started to do it after michael saylor square tesla etc all started to participate and i think now what you're starting to get is nation states um a, a portion of the nation states are having that conversation what's fascinating to me is they're not the nation states that you would expect they're not the united states or great britain or france or spain no it's south and central america it's you know uh, countries in africa um and, and frankly it, it's the people who probably need it the most right the developing nations uh and also the people who have the least to lose to go do something like this and, and so like that makes sense now with all that said uh china russia the united states etc they've absolutely thought about it and fig- you know and tried to figure out like how they're going to um uh, kind of participate the thing though is with the developed nations. The innovator's dilemma takes over. Are you really going to disrupt yourself? Like, well, that sounds kind of crazy from a nation-state level, and so they just choose to kind of sit it out. And so I think just naturally, you're going to have the developing nations go ahead and, uh, before you ever get any participation from the developed nations.
2: So I want to, I do want to talk a little bit about China because it's kind of the polar opposite lately than El Salvador. But uh, Elliot, you want to add anything to uh, to, to Anthony's comments?
0: I I, uh, just one thing, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, too. But it seems to me that the um, the adoption by regular people took a massive step forward with the Twitter strike uh, integration last week. And that that may be the kind of thing that forces places like the U.S. or Canada to into a position where they can't ignore it any further i mean if you think about twitter in the u.s political context it's it's become such a tool for all politicians how do you stop a currency that's now riding on top of the you know biggest arguably the biggest information network for um your political discussion in your country right like those it's pretty hard to keep these two things apart even though the u.s may feel somewhat threatened by bitcoin but um yeah, it's uh, I mean it's fascinating to see that and think about regulation. Like here in Canada, obviously we have ETFs now, right? And so once you have ETFs regulated, the the government of Canada can't really turn their back on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because the government of Canada has said these are legitimate investments for uh, use by citizens of Canada. And so I feel like there are, you know, the the we're making these slow steps forward and it's pretty hard to take the steps back and 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 that's kind of um, I, I think it's easier when you're a nation state like El Salvador. What do they have to lose? They have only things to gain, obviously. Uh, but um, Canada and the US are getting to a point maybe where you get a tipping point where it's, it's really hard for, for politicians to say no. Um, and, and I think this year has been a, a landmark year for that, maybe more so than people expected, uh, you know, the beginning of the year, in fact.
1: The one other thing I'd add to that is just like when you mentioned Twitter, uh, separating out the asset and the network, I think is really interesting. Like Bitcoin, the asset, is what people are buying and getting financial exposure to. Uh, The network ends up being what Twitter is using for the moment, right? Um, And they have the ability to send dollars or Bitcoin or eventually euros or yen or what they'll be able to send anything across the, the network. And I think that that's like a really fascinating idea, is that you can essentially create a multi-currency supporting chain uh, or payment rail, and still have it be decentralized and digital, right? And so I, we'll, we'll see what plays out, but, but I just think it's really fascinating to watch this kind of come together the way it is.
2: So let's go to that opposite. Let's go to China uh for the moment i mean it's had a couple of bands this year in terms of crypto mining and then the currency itself what you want to provide some general observations on what's happening there and what you see uh continuing to happen over the next six to nine months
1: thank you that's what we should be saying <laughs> in north america we should be saying thank you i i appreciate that's their the i appreciate their abrasive positioning I appreciate uh, that their uh, negative posture. Uh, It is incredibly valuable for the United States and for uh, uh, North American uh, citizens. If you think about what we just watched, there was over 60% of mining hash rate in China. The country kicked miners out, 90% of miners moved out, that global hash rate dropped more than 50%. And somehow when all the dust settled, most of those miners moved to north america and a very large portion of them now reside in the state of texas and so in our oil and gas capital we now have a bunch of mining and when those miners flew into or or kind of took over texas they literally orange-pilled the entire state oil and gas executives is all they want to talk about right now is, oh my god, you're telling me I can make five, six, seven times as much money for my energy and I could in these other applications or use cases? Let's go, game on, right? And to me, that's what's so fascinating about this is the economic incentive is so damn strong. And so it goes back to like, look, are we surprised that an authoritarian, you know, kind of uh, dictatorship doesn't like uh, Bitcoin? So not it's a it's a freedom technology everything of the american ethos is embodied in this technology self-sovereignty individual freedom personal liberty you know censorship resistance like like all that stuff is um uh, embodied and then it provides democratic access to financial services like all that of course they don't like it (laughs) like it's actually surprising it took this long right (laughs) and in some crazy way they almost like helped build up the network and then they like released it on the rest of the world and kicked it out. And so we probably aren't nearly as far along from an infrastructure standpoint without all of the things they did along the way. But now I think that that is the opportunity, right? It's like, which nation state is going to go and take the lead? I think the United States has got a pretty good shot at it, but you know we just gotta make sure we don't screw around and do anything crazy to, to basically replicate what they've done in China.
2: Are are you um are you concerned about US regulation around uh, Bitcoin? No.
1: The banks have a very big set in US regulation. And the banks own Bitcoin, the banks have built teams around Bitcoin, the banks have built products and services around Bitcoin, the banks tend to employ before and after their appointments. Those that go sit at the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, etc. And so if the banks have an outsized say, we check that box. The banks are bitcoiners now. They figured out how to make money on. It. On top of that, really the only people who could be drastically catastrophic for Bitcoin would be politicians. The Senate and Congress in the United States could vote on things but there's congressmen and senators who now own the assets. And on top of that, they've seen in their congressional districts or their uh, kind of populations, the economic impact, the job creation, the financial security it brings, right? All these different things. And then that's just the financial impact and the ownership. When you overlay it with every politician is in the business of pleasing, those that are the loudest, there's nobody on the internet that you want on your side more than Bitcoiners, because when they're on your side, they're behind you, and so that's why politicians put their laser eyes on, that's why politicians are, uh, you know, trying to understand the Bitcoin issue, they're trying to speak directly to those people, you know, we're, we're literally talking about a group of folks who memed imaginary internet money into the portfolios of Howard Marks, Ray Dalio, Steve Cohen, George Soros, Mike Novogratz, et cetera. The best investors in the world, the most widely well-respected investors, Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Druckenmiller, Kathy Wood, all these people. They now put literally ones and zeros that were created 12 years ago, just made up out of thin air, in their portfolios. That doesn't happen because there's a CEO or a marketing team or any of that stuff. It's because of this group of volunteers on the internet who built the infrastructure, they built the custody providers, built the exchanges, they built messaging, right? They did all those things. And so I tend to think that like politicians are realizing like people are pretty resourceful, they're pretty good at mobilizing, they got a lot of money um, and financial resources. I probably wanna be aligned with them. And Naturally, uh, when you have a politician meet an industry, the industry usually isn't the thing that kind of uh, is malleable, right? It's usually the ball of and views. And I think yeah. that's what we're watching play out
2: here. I do want to stay on regulation for a moment because I do think it dovetails into ETFs in the U.S. But before we do, Elliot, you want
0: to uh, cover off anything that uh, Anthony just talked about? Um, well, just I, I think, you know, the, the interesting question of adoption in different industries comes up a lot. You know, our. Um, former business partner of mine and i think a friend of yours greg foss uh talks a lot about uh pricing oil in bitcoin back to your point about texas and so you know maybe that also pushes things along right you end up with big energy producers who are realizing they're getting orange-pilled as you say you know these 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 folks are going to want to sell their energy and get bitcoin for it and and when you get big industrial complexes who adopt a technology like Bitcoin. It's, it's not just, you know, individual people on Twitter. This is These are real industries with lobby groups and established relationships and everything else. So I, I think it can be pretty powerful when you start to combine those sort of forces together. Uh, it's pretty exciting to see. So um, SEC
2: uh, ETFs, I know you've done a few podcasts on this uh, in terms of when is the U.S. going to have an ETF, as you know. Um, we were able to launch a Bitcoin and an Ether ETF earlier this year, and we actually just launched a multi-crypto ETF last week. Uh, so a lot of people around the world kind of view the Canadian regulators as being very forward-thinking uh, in the approval process. You're talking to a lot, of, a lot of individuals in the U.S. right now. What are your observations of a pending um, ETF approval there?
1: How do they keep saying no? <laughs> I mean look, can, they, can, can they keep saying no? Absolutely, right? Do they have that right for sure? Um do I think that they will say no forever? Absolutely not. Uh I, I really do think the uh the big inflection point here, unfortunately, who the players were, right? When it was crypto native firms or firms that didn't come with hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars of assets a lot easier to kind of say we'll eh, what is weight right if you go meet with fidelity and fidelity is like hey we got 1.7 trillion dollars in assets where's the etf again you can still say no just a little bit harder to say no to them than it is to you know some firm that uh is much smaller and so i think that that's really the game here is how do we um one Get them to say yes which i think is ultimately good for the industry right it, it'll bring in more capital bring in certain types of investors but it's actually a safer product a more efficient product for the market a better pricing all that kind of stuff so all that that's important the second thing is uh, i think that there's a really big opportunity um to allow those etfs to serve as um uh, kind of a uh Uh, the inflection point, if you will, and validation point for an entire group of folks who previously have thought that it wasn't real. So there's like a group of people who they're in. Then there's a group of people who are like, hey, I'm convinced that I should get allocation, but I can't because of uh, the size of the market or the structure of the vehicles or whatever. And there's a whole group that's like, this is stupid, like the regulators hate it, there's no ETF, whatever. The second that an ETF gets approved, you can kind of wipe away a lot of the and so it also then helps the uh, uh, it also helps with the uh, uh, folks who can't get in because of certain fund structures as well. And I think that's ultimately we're going to see. Now the big question is like when, right? When does it get approved? I don't know. Well, it's it's
2: it's uh, there's a lot of ETF industry participants that uh, believe that it that, that that believe strongly that it's going to be this month. Uh, but it's not going to be a, a it's not going to be spot Bitcoin it's going to be Bitcoin futures uh, that gets approved and so it'll be interesting to see what happens Elliot maybe you want to kind of talk a little bit about the journey that we had at evolve as it related to uh, getting
0: our our cryptocurrency ETFs off the ground yeah for sure you know we started in 2017 and we were going to do a futures product back then um, because we couldn't figure out uh, Bitcoin custody, the solutions like Gemini and Coinbase, they weren't uh, ready to take on investment fund clients back in 2017. Um, now, we didn't get there in 2017. The regulators uh, just struggled with uh, the asset class, but over time, they became more comfortable with the idea that, you know, in an investment fund vehicle, this makes sense. And so by the time we started working on this again last year, um, we were we were able to point to products in the market that were closed-end structures, the trade on the exchange, and there are a few in the states that are pretty large, but the, the price in the price experience for investors wasn't good because they don't have the ETF market makers to keep the price close to the actual net assets. And so um we were able to uh, prevail upon the regulators to approve our ETF as we proved out the liquidity of the Bitcoin market. I mean, that's something that when you start to talk to the government about this and they there's so much they need to learn about because they don't have the default assumptions, you know, it trades on the New York Stock Exchange. Therefore, I don't ask any more questions. We had to actually go through in detail and say, listen, you know, here's this market. Look how deep it is. Look how liquid it is. We could have an ETF that takes in hundreds of millions of dollars a day and we're not going to move the price around. Nobody's going to get in front of this the way that we trade and settle it. At Gemini, you know, our products are using the same reference price as the futures are uh, on the CME. So CME futures ETFs will be you know, tracking the same index price, but they'll have all the roll costs of the futures, whereas we just hold physical Bitcoin in our fund. But it was a back and forth with our regulators. I imagine the same thing's happening in the U.S. Um, we're lucky here in Canada that we could explore these issues uh, with the regulators in an open dialogue without kind of people feeling they're stuck in their positions. Sometimes it feels like that kind of narrative is going on um, in some countries as they talk about this, and we were able to find a solution where we were able to to work with market makers because it's a whole industry that comes together for this right we got bank market makers who have to quote on the etf for investors to buy and sell from they need to use the futures to take the risk off the table so that the price is accurate we need to, to figure out custody we have to figure out how to price our product how to face the counterparty all of those infrastructure pieces came together um and um so we were very happy to have bitcoin in february and then ether our ether etf in April, and now our new fund, which holds both of those in one uh, ETF, which is the first of its kind to be multi crypto. Um, and so Canada's kind of ahead of the curve on this in some ways, but um, it may just be our approach and the style of conversation between issuers and regulators that, that makes us kind of lucky in that regard. I don't think fundamentally, based on the news I read, that the actual issues and concerns are really any different between any of the governments. They want to make sure that this stuff is, you know, real. It's here and it's legitimate. Um, but I think to your point, um, Anthony, it's getting harder to say no, right? Because when you when you ask that question, you get a legitimate answer from somebody who's done the homework. It's it's really hard to point at that these days and say this isn't a real thing. It was it was kind of easier back before 2017 when it was much newer back then and and you didn't have the futures and you didn't have adoption by big banks and you didn't have adoption by, I mean, you have a nation state calling it legal tender. How do you say, no, how do you say something's not real when that's yeah. happened? Right? So, um, anyway, that's a bit about our process. We actually are, are very hopeful for, um, the U S to, to get, uh, ETFs approved. We think it benefits all investors and that includes, you know, Canadians as well. And, and, um, uh, we all think we're on the same team here. So, um, we're, we're watching closely to the story that, uh, that what you're experiencing south of the border. So, um, so Anthony, you know,
2: I'm curious also as to what your perspectives are in terms of institutional and even corporate adoption of, of, of Bitcoin. I can tell you that, you know, since since we launched uh, our fund, uh, I guess it's over six months ago now, we've obviously had some of those institutional conversations. We haven't seen a ton in Canada. I mean we don't as you probably know, you don't get a ton of visibility in ETFs uh, in terms of who's buying. Uh, but we haven't seen a ton of institutional adoption here in Canada. We've seen that a lot of them have perhaps opted to invest in some of the crypto infrastructure companies instead of instead of Bitcoin, for example uh, itself. Um, what are you seeing what are you seeing in the US or even globally uh, from an institutional adoption perspective?
1: Yeah, I think they, again, go back to kind of that institutional cohort, that second cohort of adoption. Um, I really separated out into uh, two groups there's the corporations and then there's like the institutions, like the financial institutions. When I look there, um, I think a lot about career risk, and the career risk has now been removed, and so it opens the door, gives the green light for, for a lot of institutions to participate. Uh, I'm fascinated with uh, the corporations coming in. That I think is kind of a, a pretty clear one. I've got everything from uh, very small startups that raise venture rounds asking, hey, should I put some of this in Bitcoin? Uh, which is you know, pr- pretty crazy to think that we're here now. Uh, all the way up to uh, to large institutions, large hedge funds, et cetera. One of the groups that uh, I believe we got the first US public pension funds to allocate to Bitcoin in 2018 uh was pretty good. Um, but now the big focus is when are the sovereign wealth's gonna capitulate? And some of them have kind of been, you know, playing around the edges, investing in companies in the space, you know, they're, they're doing a lot of stuff. But like, who's the first sovereign wealth fund that just comes out and says, Hey, we bought a you know, three billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and we're gonna tell you we did it? Global FOMO kicks off, right? And so I think you can kind of watch again, like the individuals were in there was a FOMO phase, and that led to competition. Then you got some of the early financial institutions actually kind of snowballed into now more and more financial institutions have a Bitcoin strategy. Then you kind of have like the billionaire hedge fund class in 2020. Paul Tudor Jones came out and said it. Then Stanley Druckenmiller, and then bam, it just spread like wildfire through the whole thing. Then all of a sudden you have. Uh, endowments, foundations, hospital systems, those guys all getting in. And now what I think you're gonna see the next big one to to fall, Uh, one is we got public pensions. I think there's three public pensions that are now in that should kind of permeate through that world. And then they are uh, sovereign wealth funds. Those sovereign wealth funds, they got a lot of money. Or you start looking in the Middle East. I mean, there's folks that have, you know, a hundred billion, 800, 900 billion. I mean, it's a lot of money in those sovereign wealth funds. and a small allocation of one or 2% could uh, could be quite impactful. So those are the things that I'm kind of thinking through. Um, the, the only other thing I would say is, uh, it feels like there is uh, um, a misunderstanding in the market. Like each one of these institutions is run by individuals. And so the individuals have to become Bitcoiners in some way before the institution does. And I think finally the career risk from a financial Asset allocation sample has been removed. Now we've had those people become Bitcoiners. The institution follows shortly thereafter. And then, just in terms of uh, size of allocations, we previously were seeing people, oh, I put $10 million, $20 million. Now we're starting to see big numbers. Right now, we're starting to see, you know, Tesla came out, so we bought a billion and a half dollars for the big. Right, you're starting to see some of the banks, etc. We saw US Bank announce with this partnership with NIDA. We saw Fidelity come out with a huge announcement. We're seeing Mass Mutual, an insurance company, of nine figure investment. So, like, it's starting to grow in size. And I tend to just zoom out and say, like, what do we need for more of this to happen? It's just time, in my opinion. Just yeah. literally, it's going to take 10 more years, and then we're going to all look back and be like, remember that when like nobody owned that? Like, that was crazy. Right. But it's going to take time for, for us to kind of get more familiarity, get people comfortable, uh, see the track record of the asset, and then they'll eventually jump in.
0: Good. Anything
2: to add? Up?
1: Yeah, I would just echo
0: that. What what you're saying is what we hear from the big investors we've been talking to. I, I would say there are a few things that came out of conversations after we launched our Bitcoin fund in, uh, in February. Um, the first is... Uh, These institutions who aren't using Bitcoin yet may be hyper informed, but just haven't made the investment committee decision. And so what what we found in those conversations was a lot of times you're talking to somebody and you say, um, you know, you start talking about Bitcoin. They say, oh, I know about it. I own it personally. We're not owning it as a as a group yet or as an institution yet. But that's a big shift from, you know, four years ago. The career risk thing is hundred percent true. That that couldn't be more true. Back in twenty seventeen, we just those conversations. That was all about you know I can't look at this. I have career risk. Now it's I can't be ignorant to this or I have career risk. And the Tesla thing um, has changed some minds in some of the um, some of the sort of institutional investors that we've talked to who have said at the investment committees that they go to. They can't ignore it. It's not possible because it's owned by companies that they own because of the index investing they do. If you own the S&P 500, you own some Bitcoin. You just do today. So you can't ignore that now. You can't keep your head in the sand anymore. It's impossible. So that there's this like virtuous cycle where you've got corporate ownership spurs, institutional investment ownership which makes these conversations happen. And at the committee, there are actually a whole bunch of people who might not have admitted it to their colleagues, but they bought some, they have their own wallet, they're doing it on the side, or now with ETFs, they own a little bit themselves. That's that's all kind of percolating around and we hear about it a lot in our conversations. So I would agree, I don't think the big money is here yet, but I think the big money has never been more prepared on the sidelines than it is today. Um, so that's, that's unbelievably exciting. And I, I mean, I'm just talking about the Canadian investors we're talking to, let alone, the the sovereign wealth funds that you might be in contact with around the world.
2: So um, last question. Uh, There's a lot of people on this, uh, on this podcast webinar uh, that are investment advisors here in Canada. And since we launched our ETF, we've obviously had a lot of conversations with investment advisors here in Canada. Uh, I would say that, you know, 95% 95% of them are not actively using any crypto ETFs with client portfolios for whatever reason. Primarily, it would be uh, you know probably one of two reasons or a combination. They either don't believe in it or it's too volatile um, for clients. And 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 I and I can understand that, right? I mean, if you're if your clients looking through their statement and they're, oftentimes they're going to focus on the one thing that's down and There's a chance that, you know, at at a certain time, Bitcoin's going to be down in that period of time. It's going to be red. So really what they're doing is they're facilitating trades for a lot of their clients because clients are calling them up, saying, I want to buy Bitcoin. And then the advisor is saying, "Okay, well, why don't you buy this Bitcoin uh, ETF? Now, I know you don't have a lot of options in the U.S., but have you spoken to RIAs there or some of the dealers uh, in the U.S.? And what is their perspective on crypto? Because I've seen some interviews with some of the largest RIAs saying that they're spreading crypto right across their, like one or 2% of their client portfolios. But what what are you seeing there in the US?
1: I mean, listen, in 2018, I said this, and the legacy financial world was laughing. And I said multiple times, it is a violation of your fiduciary duty to not have exposure to this asset. And people said, what do you mean? That's crazy. And I said, it's not just about the financial return. The fiduciary duty is the best return you can achieve evaluated on a risk reward framework. So you can't just look at how much money could I make. You also have to look at what is the risk that I'm taking. You have to look at the totality of the asset, including things like the Sharpe ratio and the correlations and the potential return, the drawdowns, all that stuff. If I look at Bitcoin, and this data is a little old, maybe like eight, nine months old, but there was a five-year period about nine months ago where if you had invested in a 60-40 global portfolio, you'd return 7.2%. If you had taken half a percent from stocks, half a percent from bonds and allocated it to Bitcoin. So you would have been 59 and a half percent to stocks, 39 and a half percent to bonds, 1% to Bitcoin you would have increased your return from 7.2 to 9.2%. If that 1% had gone to zero, you would have lost 20 basis points down to 7%. So 200 basis point upside, 20 basis point downside. If you had gotten that 1% exposure to Bitcoin, you would have increased your Sharpe ratio by over 20%. And so when you look at it as not only a potential return driver in the portfolio of 200 basis points, but also as a non-correlated asset, it's got a correlation of about 0.15 to other traditional assets and also a very, very high sharp ratio. You then start to realize, wait a second, this is like the apex predator of financial markets, right? This is the asset. If you don't have exposure to this asset, there's problems, right? And I I think one of the things that um, we are now seeing people start to wake up to is realizing it's not only a question of, should I buy Bitcoin or should I not? There's also a question of, if I don't buy Bitcoin, what else am I gonna buy? There's trillions of dollars that have been printed. In 2008, 2009, the Fed's balance sheet in the US was 900 billion. Today, it's about 8.5 trillion. We're gonna hit a 10-bagger in about 12, 13 years in the Fed's balance sheet. Okay, at the same time, we have five plus percent CPI inflation that over 4% core inflation. Earlier this year they hit record levels where uh, CPI was the highest it's been in 13 years and core inflation was the highest it's been in 30 years. So where do you go? Okay, I want to go to real estate. Well it's an illiquid asset that doesn't have merely the upside and also it actually doesn't have merely the non-correlation. I want to go to equities, great, but Problem again, is high levels of correlation. And depending on what equities you buy, they have a really, really high dependence on no tapering, no Fed action, et cetera. But when you look at something like Bitcoin, you get the liquidity, you get the upside, you get the non-correlation, you get the sharp ratio, et cetera. You, you have to put it in a portfolio. And so what I think is uh, quickly happening is the RIAs especially, are being pulled by their clients, similar to what you said, where clients are calling up saying, hey, I want exposure to this, I want exposure to this. And then once a couple of their big clients call and ask, it almost provides them air cover for everyone else, right? Because to some degree, like the people you don't want to lose if you're an RIA is your biggest clients, right? You're okay, actually, if you lose, you know, a 100K client here or there, you don't want to lose any clients, but if you happen to lose one of them, no problem. Now I think where we've gotten to is a really large and client they're the ones who've actually called and said, to Get me the exposure. And so now it's kind of trickling down at an at an RIA. And also, no, look, let's just be frank. It's easy to say, well, Paul Tudor Jones, Stanley Druckenmiller, Miller, Steve Cohen, and them all own it. And oh, by the way, Fidelity owns it, and JP Morgan's helping their you know, wealth clients buy it. And you know, now all of a sudden uh, the SEC chairman, the Federal Reserve Chairman both said they're not gonna ban it, and they said it's not a security like that all wasn't there five years ago it's here now and so that's you see them really starting to allocate much more
0: Elliot anything to add no I uh I think that's well said I mean I I uh it, it does feel like this has been one of those uh one of those years where more and more people are nodding their heads saying the time is now who maybe were on the sidelines before so um you know, it's uh, it's hard to see when you weigh the news, right? You weigh you weigh. Well, China says no, and then you weigh all this other stuff. It's hard to kind of think about this uh, in any other way other than um, you have to look at it, you have to think about it, you have to decide how you're going to use it, and um, and it is possible to think about allocations, they take into account the volatility, and still provide a good spot for it in your portfolio, and and, and allow you to keep it keep an eye on it. So, yeah, I would agree with uh, everything um, Anthony said. And
2: there's there's also another there's also another dimension to it for sure right I mean uh, I saw this article last week I believe that said that there are more account holders at Coinbase than there are at Schwab and um, Ameritrade combined so what that means is that you know on both sides of the border most likely uh, almost all of your clients or many of your clients actually own uh, cryptocurrency they opened up a digital wallet so. Here in Canada, at least, given the fact that we've got ETFs, doesn't it make sense uh, to to move it potentially into your brokerage account, into your, we have things like your IRAs, but we have um, uh, we have um, RSPs and and uh, TFSAs and so on and so forth. So I think that that's where a lot of advisors are, are potentially missing the opportunity on both sides of the border, not knowing that a lot of their clients already did open up a digital wallet that's just actually not in there in their portfolio. Anyways, with that, I would like to thank you very much, Anthony, and of course, Elliot, uh, for joining us today. Really appreciated the insights and look forward to doing this again soon.
1: Absolutely, thank you guys so much for having me. Big fans of what you guys are doing, so keep it up. Thanks. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated, Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at evolveetfs.com.